Hello and welcome to Westminster Watch. It's the 16th of October. I'm Dermot Hudson from the Department of Politics at Birkbeck and I'm joined as usual by my colleague Ben Worthy. The purpose of this podcast is to explore issues in the news that are of relevance to students at British politics, particularly those taking our undergraduate module Contemporary British Politics. So over to you, Ben, for the first topic. Well, I thought we'd begin by talking about the Freedom of Information Act, which is just celebrated its uh, 10th birthday. The Freedom of Information Act, um, briefly, is a piece of legislation that allows you to access information held by public bodies, subject to uh, certain exceptions and exemptions, such as national security. And uh, even though it's reached its 10th decade, it's remained rather a controversial piece of legislation. Um, partially because, by its very nature, asking government a question can reveal all sorts of interesting information. The MP's expenses was partly the result of a freedom of information request. Um, and even more interestingly, Tony Blair uh, spent two pages of his memoirs talking about how freedom of information and the passage of the Act, which he pushed for, was one of his two biggest regrets. Um, his other big regret as Prime Minister was banning of fox hunting with dogs. Um, and what happens often when countries pass freedom of information legislation, and more than a hundred different countries now have some form of freedom of information legislation, is that uh, they can start to regret it, find it a little bit tough with people asking legally enforceable questions. So in recent uh, months, the government has created an independent commission to look at the Freedom of Information Act. And it's really based on two issues. One issue is whether asking, being able to ask questions means that people in government don't record things as they used to. So if you're subject to a request in the future, you might not write down everything that's involved in a decision. The second area actually relates to Prince Charles and um, whether the government is allowed to have an ultimate veto over an FOI request or not, because they did have one and it was built into the Act um, but it was on kind of legally murky grounds. And uh, the Prince Charles' release of his memos led to a Supreme Court case, which um, put the veto into question. So there's now an independent commission looking into it. How independent is this independent commission? Um, well, it is independent in the sense that the government has no influence in it. There's two former Home Secretaries on there. Um, it's led by Lord Burns, a member of the House of Lords, um, but he's uh, both he, he was permanent secretary to the treasury and um, has uh, two other members one of whom is from Ofcom I understand that one of the proposals they might be considering in this um, uh, commission is to introduce a charge for freedom of information and my understanding was that they have a charge in Ireland or at least introduced a charge and suddenly the cost uh, um, increase for people of putting in a freedom of information request and the number of requests was, was dramatically reduced in Ireland. Could you give me a sense of the kind of pros and cons of charging for something like a freedom of mm. information request? Well, it, it's a difficult area because lots of uh, countries around the world do charge for a freedom of information request, a standard charge in India to the United States. Um, on the one hand, the claim is that because it costs money to process freedom of information request, you should ask people to pay. And in Britain, if you use the Data Protection Act to ask for information about yourself, you pay a standard charge of £10. On the other side of it is that if you do introduce a fee, A, it stops people 
from using it. And B, it's politically controversial because it looks like you are trying to discourage people from using the act. But is there not a case for discouraging people for putting in unnecessary freedom of information requests? My sense is that, you know, there's a cost in terms of civil servants' time and in terms of the resources that would go into a given um, freedom of information request and that it's kind of... um, There's a sense about the allocation of scarce resources in government uh, uh, under this. So is there not an argument for perhaps costing the time of civil servants involved in this? Yeah. Here's where the difficulty comes in, because uh, it depends if you're talking about freedom of information as something that's administrative or if it's a right. And it's both of those things simultaneously. Someone wrote about the problem with freedom of information is it looks like an administrative procedure, but it's actually very political. And I suppose my other answer to that is it depends what you mean by an unnecessary request <laughs> and, and who defines what constitutes unnecessary or necessary. Um, and this is where you get into quite a political area about who exactly will you discourage from a fee and will it be the people who could be revealing something important or not? Maybe there needs to be some sort of sliding scale of fees based on the, 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 uh, the, the seeming importance of this. Um, and it's very interesting, I guess, from a political science perspective to see what we would call the policy transfer going on in this area. Policy transfer referring to the borrowing of ideas across time or in this case across countries. So you started off by saying uh, and talking about just how many countries have freedom of information uh, legislation right now. Could you give me a sense of where this move might have started to have this increased emphasis emphasis on transparency in politics? Well, um, there's a couple of different sources. The world's first ever Freedom Information Act technically was the Swedish one in 1766. But then there were none others until uh, the United States passed one in 1966. Um, and after that, it's kind of triggered a movement that's been pushed by all sorts of things. Firstly, the emergence of new democracies after the fall of the Soviet Union information technology, and also shifting ideas of how open government should be around the world, which has been changing probably since the 1980s onwards. Um, That's not to say that all the acts in place work. Zimbabwe has a Freedom of Information Act. Uh, There is also openness legislation in China, for example. And it's not clear how many of these laws are there just to show the World Bank and other people that you've passed one rather than, I mean, the number of actually functioning freedom of information regimes is probably very small. And what kind of evidence is there on the impact of uh, um, freedom of information legislation on public policy? I mean, I have in mind um, the literature on international organisations, which talks about the fact that transparency in international negotiations can seem like a good thing, but can have a very negative effect on the quality and effectiveness of international bargaining. There's a sense in which um, bargaining in the public arena or in, in view of the public arena can, can substantively alter those negotiations. How well, scholars have suggested that you're more likely to kind of play to the gallery a bit in negotiations, to posture and perhaps to um, set aside a more rational approach to bargaining based on evidence and uh, consensus. So there might be an example of how transparency would look like a good thing, but could actually lead to a less desirable um, um, political uh, process. 
I'm only really aware of this stuff in relation to international relations. Do you have any sense of, of how this plays out more generally in relation to FOI? Well, I'm not, uh, I'm not somebody who thinks that transparency uh, is a bad thing. One of the difficulties is that all around the world for the past 20, 30 years, transparency is seen as good. And now there's a bit of a fashion for attacking it. I think the evidence is that transparency works differently in different contexts. So it's very different to have open meetings in a school than it would to have open meetings at EU level. And it also depends on the perceptions and the people involved in the environment in which it happens. Um, So I think people's view of transparency is quite complex and its effects depend on where it's happening. So for the time being, I can only say that transparency in different contexts can work in different ways, positive or negative ways. It depends who the people are and how their behaviour is affected. I mean, certainly debates on transparency in central banking, where we've seen a move towards independence um, uh, in, in central banking over the last two decades. This has left central banks acutely aware of their own um, challenges, really, in terms of, of seeking legitimacy. When you're not directly accountable to politicians, how do you promote your legitimacy? And often these central banks have fallen back on transparency, mm. publishing minutes, having press conferences um, as a kind of alternate route to uh, seeking legitimacy. So this is this is a rich area of research, I guess, and, and, and something that we'll be following uh, closely, especially as the work of this commission goes on. Okay, so I'd like to move to our next topic, which is the Scottish National Party's conference, which is going on as we speak in Aberdeen. And we had Nicola Sturgeon's warm-up speech yesterday. I thought it was actually the full speech, but Ben reminded me that she was just uh, trying to get more than one day's headlines by launching this uh, uh, conference. And I found it a very interesting event. I mean, she is a formidable politician. I think along with David Cameron, she would be the most effective and commanding political presence on the British political stage at present. And yet she found herself in a very tricky spot in this speech because she had to talk about exactly how her party and her government in Scotland would approach the issue of independence. We had a referendum, of course, in 2014, which saw the motion for independence rejected. But somewhat paradoxically, after this, we see a massive surge in the um, position of the SNP. We see um, the SNP's vote share, as Nicola Sturgeon pointed out, increasing threefold since the 2010 election. They had around slightly less than half a million voters in that election. Now they have one and a half million. So this was a politician uh, talking uh, in in a very interesting moment and riding the crest of a political wave. But how did she deal with this issue of uh, independence? She said that um, they had to tread cautiously over the possibility of a second referendum. She said that it wouldn't be appropriate this close to the previous referendum to consider a second one. But having said that, she then talked about the conditions under which that second referendum might happen. So this is a politician who's kind of, you know, talking to two audiences in a way. And I guess we can discuss what those conditions are, but I wanted to start off on the first one, uh, which I thought was uh, pretty amazing. And it was pretty amazing talking about freedom of information and transparency. This seemed to to be an excessively honest condition attached to this referendum. She said we wouldn't be considering a referendum unless opinion polls had changed to suggest that now a large and sustainable majority were in favour of independence. That's what I think of politicians as thinking behind closed doors. We have referendums when we think we can win them. 
And here's Nicola Sturgeon standing up and saying, yes, we could have a referendum, providing it would look like we would win it. And Ben, what are your thoughts on that rider to this second referendum idea? It's fascinating. Um, fascinating, as, as, as one journalist said, uh, she, she, she appears to be handing the decision to YouGov and the polling companies and letting them decide as to when a um, referendum can be called. I think reading the speech, exactly what you say, it's extraordinarily interesting seeing the party in a very interesting position where they're trying to talk to two different audiences. So the, talk, the speech began with getting the referendum issue out of the way, but then it talk, moved to housing, schools, hospitals. And this is a very obvious pitch to um, the other voters for the SNP who aren't necessarily pro-independence, but see them as a competent government. And obviously, at the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon are extraordinarily lucky to be in Scotland in a place where there is no real opposition. Because if there was a stronger opposition, it would be very difficult to appeal simultaneously to these two audiences without finding it quite difficult and, and being criticised for it. And yes, she spent a lot of her time kind of trash-talking Jeremy Corbyn in this speech, right? You know, saying how she might have liked the idea of working with him, but she doesn't think he's credible. We had this U-turn over the fiscal um, charter during the week, and she said that that U-turn had taken place at the instigation of the SNP. And there was a nice moment in the speech where she talked about how the 56 MPs from the SNP, that's 56 out of 59 Scottish MPs, would be late for the conference because they were in Westminster the previous evening, you know, fighting austerity, basically. And that was, that was a nice flourish in her speech. Um, so yet she is still talking about Labour and still, still you know, concerned on some level. There is, uh, I, one reaction I had to the speech was that she, there was a certain point of commonality between her and Jeremy Corbyn in the sense that she seems to be the leader of a better organised yeah. um, populist party. And there was mm. a lot of populism in this speech talking about anti-austerity measures, very social, social democratic in its flavour, um, talking about fighting the Conservatives yeah. on threats to what they like to think of as a kind of social democratic consensus in, uh, in Scotland. So, so one, okay, so we've talked about some of the conditions she, she attached to the possible second referendum. A second one, and this was very interesting for me, was the idea that um, a second Scottish independence referendum will be linked to David Cameron's referendum on whether to stay in the European Union. Yeah. And I thought one of the strongest lines in the speech was when she said that David Cameron argued that the best way of keeping Scotland in the European Union was to vote against Scottish independence because there was a big question marks over whether and how Scotland might apply to EU membership. And I think Cameron used that tool very effectively in 2014. And now here he is risking taking uh, Scotland out of uh, um, the EU, but, but by means of the UK. So what she was saying here was that, you know, we respect voters' decisions on the Scottish referendum if public opinion changes and we don't like policies that might change. But the deal breaker really would be whether or not um, Cameron can win this referendum. Now, I find that really intriguing because on one level she's saying we want to be a member of the European Union. On another level, she's saying if we're taken out of the European Union against our will, this will be a trigger for the referendum that our party is very committed to. She was asked about this in an interview on Channel 4 News when they said, surely you should be not intervening in this EU referendum debate because that would be the quickest way for you to get the Scottish referendum that you wanted. Hmm. And she said, well, I'm not that Machiavellian. I, it was her answer that this would seem to be too ruthless a way to get Scottish 
in independence. Um, my reaction was that perhaps she's playing the long game. Scotland will need to make the case for independence as not disrupting economic relations in the UK. And those economic relations would be disturbed less, I think, were the UK to remain a member of the European Union. In other words, you would need to worry less about a trade deal between Scotland and the rest of the UK if they were all members of the European Union because the single market uh, would apply. So in a way, you know, English, Welsh and Northern Irish membership of the EU is very important to Sturgeon's case Mm. for Scottish independence. Any thoughts on how these referendums were linked? (laughs) Wow, well, Nicholas Sturgeon said on a few occasions that, uh, or at least asked that a referendum not just be um, based on 50 or more percent of the UK population, but 50% of each of the constituent countries of the UK. So not just 50% of people in the UK voting to leave the EU, but it needs to be 50% of Scotland, 50% of Wales, 50% of England, 50% of Northern Ireland. And obviously the, the expectation there is that you simply won't get that, so, so we, we wouldn't leave. Um, we discussed this in our parliamentary studies class, and what you see is if this did happen, if England voted to leave the EU but the other countries in the referendum didn't, there'd be a serious constitutional crisis in some senses because we're in uncharted territory there. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that crisis is already around us. The fact that we don't really have formula for taking these constitutional decisions, the fact that there is no referendum, at least traditionally in the way that power is exercised in Britain, um, points towards the fact that I think this country is in dire need of a constitutional convention. You know, I think that's one of the themes that's emerging from this podcast is that there are these big, big questions about how power is exercised in this country and we approach them in a very ad hoc and speculative mm. way. And, um, you know, I think, you know, Scotland and the EU and the tensions surrounding those issues are, are just manifestations uh, of this point. Just one extra thought, uh, which you were talking about. It's very interesting that um, the SNP are simultaneously in government and they've been in government astonishingly for eight years. And yet, in a sense, they're still behaving like the outsiders because they're behaving like the outsiders by by being kind of in opposition to London, even though they're in government. And it's a, another interesting kind of, not trick, but an interesting kind of ability to be two things at the same time, both be in charge of a country, but also talk in opposition to others as if they're outsiders to the political system. And I see this a little bit in relation to the whole question of devolution. I guess this is something we'll try and dedicate a podcast to uh, in due course. But you had the Smith Commission, which talked about the need for devolution um, around about the time of the of the independence referendum. And that was a very important way of kind of swinging the vote in favour of, of the union. And at the moment, we are in the middle, really, of seeing how and whether these reforms will be implemented. So these are things like the further devolution of fiscal powers to Edinburgh, giving them greater control over tax and welfare. Um, That could amount to 11 billion per year in extra resources for Edinburgh. So that's very significant. But what what interests me, apart from those details, is the question of how Sturgeon reacts to that. Does she say, um, we welcome that devolution, even though that devolution in a way is supposed to dilute ambitions Mm. for independence? And she's clever. So she says... Of course we would welcome this, but we don't think it's enough, so we want to go beyond it. And she's the master in this country, really, of playing both sides of those kinds of arguments. We have a Scotland bill going through Parliament very slowly, it would seem, at present, and that is trying to implement 
some of these measures in the Smith Commission. Um, but yet Sturgeon's well out ahead of it by talking about the post-Smith kind of uh, devolutionary settlement. Uh, very interesting for me that, that these things play out um, in, in such a complex fashion and how she seems to be uh, well ahead of that game. I mean, one of the jokes is, of course, is the SNP are essentially a one-party state in, uh, in Scotland. Um, it absolutely dominates Scottish politics. I thought there was a very interesting piece at the end of Channel 4 News last night about land reform in Scotland, which is an issue about which I know nothing. And it could be one of those slow burn issues. There's, the big question is, will the SNP's dominance ever end? Will, you know, will, because remember, before the 1950s, the big party in Scotland were the Tories. Mm. And then between 50, 1950s and 1990s, the dominant party was going to be there forever was Labour. And now we've got another dominant party, the SNP. And, and how will their dominance end if it does end, if Scotland doesn't become independent? And one of the big questions could be about things, things that we don't know much about but could be very severe slow burn issues on their, their core vote, like something about land reform. For me, this was yet another flashback to the kind of late 1800s. I mean, we had this in Ireland. We had this whole issue of, uh, you know, tenants absentee landlords and I thought I saw the same item on Channel 4 News and the, the, the best they could do was get the the kind of agent of the landlord who was you know uh, a member of the aristocracy to talk about how he had never increased rents against the will of his tenant farmers this was Charles Stuart Parnell territory and um, Parnell in the in the late 1800s uh, um, was the master of playing these complex political games. He was the inventor of obstructionism in Westminster to try and ensure that land reform and eventually home rule was put on the books. But kind of unwittingly, he set in motion independence because home rule was put on the books, never delivered. And then 100 years ago, you get uh, the 1916 rising. And there's echoes of Scotland, uh, echoes of Ireland in the Scottish debate all over, Mm. um, especially on the point about tenant farmers. Okay, so thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more Westminster Watch very soon.